0: Greetings. I am your host, Ted Flanagan, and this episode of the Net Positive podcast features a conversation with Brian Hannigan. He's the president and chief executive officer of Holy Cross Energy, an electric cooperative in the mountains of Colorado. Given his leadership, Holy Cross has now become a national model of integrating distributed energy resources and effectively finding win-win solutions for utility and consumer benefit delighted to have brian on the show brian welcome to the net positive podcast it's a pleasure to have you to do an episode with you this afternoon and you know i was looking at your background and and i saw university of oklahoma but uh where were you born and raised i don't think it was oklahoma no
1: it wasn't ted and uh, thanks for having me on i appreciate the opportunity to share a little bit of time with you and, and your listeners um now, I was uh, born in Southern California, in uh, Inglewood, California, and uh, moved to Torrance when we were very young, and then out to Orange County to the Tustin foothills uh, there, just inland from the water about 10 miles, and that's where I went to high school and grew up, and that's still my home where my parents and my family live today.
0: So just just it off to Oklahoma for your undergraduate, because I see you got a master's and a PhD from UC Irvine.
1: That's right. Yeah. Uh, so I came back to UC Irvine after undergraduate at the University of Oklahoma. Um, I was always fascinated as a kid in the weather, uh, which is hard to imagine because in Southern California, we don't have a whole lot of it. Uh, so so it, was, uh, it was a necessity to go to a place where you had a lot of weather to study. Um, Oklahoma's got one of the best meteorology programs in the country, and I was fortunate enough to be admitted um, spent some great time there working, uh, in, in some wonderful environments. This was pre twister days. So I was a storm chaser before storm chasing was cool, but I can't say I had any success. In fact, when we would choose our caravans to go out in the afternoon, I was usually that proverbial last kid picked because nobody wanted me in the car as I was, you know, known tornado repellent. Uh, but, uh, when I, when I went to Irvine, uh, the focus became less about weather and more about climate and trying to understand the long-term changes that were coming our way and are coming our way as a result of our emissions of greenhouse gases. Um, and so uh, really understanding the science of climate change in deep detail, not just the atmosphere, but the ocean and the biosphere and the soils and how all the pieces fit together. Um, and that, that research motivated me to Think long and hard about what I can do to help contribute to a more stable climate and reductions of the greenhouse gases that are at the root cause.
0: So off you went to Washington uh, with uh, with all of the spirit to, to to change and had a couple stints council on environmental quality staff, committee on, ne- on energy and natural resources staff. What was that like in, in that chronology?
1: Well, I was fortunate enough, my scientific society, the American Geophysical Union, uh, to this day, they sponsor one recent graduate to go to Washington, D.C. to be a science advisor, if you will, to the policy process, uh, particularly on the congressional side. And I was fortunate enough to receive that fellowship. Um, I left a uh, furthering of my scientific career on hold to go work in Washington, D.C. for a year, and that That year internship turned into a four-year job with the Committee on Energy and Natural Resources as kind of their their science advisor, working on a wide range of things. That's where I got involved in energy policy and energy technology. I took that down the street with me to the White House when the the president's uh, staff called and said, we'd love to have you come work here because I'd been working with them from the Hill side of things. Uh, and that was a great opportunity to work in the executive branch for about four years or so. And um, and that, that was just a wonderful time to be in government. We were focused on solving problems and working together across the aisle and really trying to make this country better, stronger, more energy independent. Um, we were actually, even though I worked in a Republican administration, some of my best achievements uh, and proudest moments were around Research and development in solar and wind and hydrogen technologies and uh, other things that reverberate to this very day. So, um, so yeah, it's a good foundation to then, you know, make the jump into the private sector as soon as I was done with government service.
0: Right. Very interesting. I like what you're saying about the the Republican administration and getting environmental works done because there is a, a long history of lots of environmental achievements during during Republican administrations that I think gets that gets often forgotten. I know you went out to NREL, the National Renewable Energy Lab in Golden, Colorado, and I was interested with your whole notion of distribution in a box. But you by that okay. point, you must have been thinking very clearly about the change in the utility industry and how it's no longer a cost plus centralized power plant type of business, but a business is gonna be including all sorts of what we now call distributed energy resources.
1: Yeah. And Ted, prior to joining the, the team at NREL in 2013, I'd actually spent seven years after leaving the White House with the Electric Power Research Institute, um, managing their energy and environmental analysis activities, um, uh, managing fossil generation research and development for a while. So coal and natural gas and, and, uh, carbon capture and storage and other technology options that we were developing in the early 2010s, um, moving into renewables and into grid integration and really seeing the cost uh, declines and the performance improvements in the component wind and solar technologies. By the time I arrived at NREL, the question was not, how do we make these technologies cheaper and uh, easier to produce so that we can get more of them deployed? It's what are we going to do now that the deployment barriers are really around integrating them into the existing power system? Um, you know, wind is here. Solar is here. Even in 2013, we were we were starting to recognize that. And of course, it's taken off tremendously since then. But the challenge was, gosh, how do we create a place where we can understand how to better integrate these into existing electrical infrastructure? Through my time working with utilities at EPRI, it was clear that no CEO in their right mind wanted to run a research experiment with their customers. That was just asking for trouble. And so the thought became, hey, can we create a dynamic version of a distribution grid through this energy systems integration facility at NREL, And we create it with all of the ability to look, walk, talk, and feel like a utility grid that a, a potential utility could come in and say, okay, show me my grid, but show me my grid with all of these distributed resources, with all of these renewables, with all these new consumer uses. Um, show me what the future might look like and help me figure out how to operate it reliably how to manage it safely how to do it in a cost effective way for the full range of consumers give me the opportunity to try it before i buy it so that i don't have to run endless pilots and and learn by doing and failing on my real system that i can actually accelerate my uh, my my uh transition to a clean energy future in a in a more direct way and and that was um that was a real joy because this the lab itself was put together with um, ARRA funding. But building out the people, building out the equipment, the research agenda, gaining the support of the offices in the Department of Energy, gaining the partnerships from the vendor community and the utilities, um, that's really what made it go. And that's what we spent our, our, our work doing in between 2013 and 2017.
0: So a lot of that sounds like it was focused on, on convincing utility management that were from this old school that this can work, that you can integrate, that you can uh, you can hook up all sorts of distributed resources to the grid. And I mean, you're, you're kind of envisioning like a, almost a plug and play system. I mean, that's oversimplifying it, but making it so yeah. you can plug in your EV, you can plug in your house battery, you can plug in your wind solar system, your community solar system. Is that, is that kind that's of the distribution true. in a box concept?
1: Well, that was that was the architecture of the ESIS facility. The lab had several different um laboratories. The the building had several different laboratories with them. One was to simulate wind and solar resources at scale, the other was some smart homes of the future, the third was where the electric vehicles and batteries were located, the fourth was where the hydrogen technologies fit in. The fifth was where we did, you know, heat and power and other technologies. Um, and they were all connected with a, a distribution bus, basically a small distribution system that had a one megawatt, uh, two megawatt capacity on it. And we were able to plug and play and say, OK, we're going to we're going to plug in all of these devices and make them interact with one another. And then we're going to power the whole thing with some power supplies that are mimicking the voltage and the power and the frequency that they would be seeing from the parent grid in wherever, Southern California, South Carolina, you know, Southern New York State, um, we would be able to drive that equipment in the laboratory with the data or the modeled performance of a future grid and and really create a test bed that could simulate that future. And we would have visualization capabilities that would allow a, a grid operator or a utility manager to come in and actually see it and touch it and well, can you turn this up? And can you crank that down and can you make it do this? And it really was a place for discovery. And, and folks walked away saying, you know, maybe this stuff isn't as impossible as it seems. Maybe we should be trying a little bit more to, to help satisfy our customers' wants for, for distributed energy.
0: Very, very interesting. And, and that just takes us right to Holy Cross. And my Holy Cross Energy, for the listeners that don't know, is an electric cooperative in the mountains of Colorado a great cooperative. And how did I, a two-part question, how did Holy Cross get lucky enough to get you? And why did you accept a position sort of high up there in the rural, in the rural part of Colorado? What, how did that? Well, Ted, I
1: think I'm luckier than Holy Cross in this transaction because um, in in coming here, I was able to find a, a wonderful community with some really ambitious goals a very supportive board of directors, um, a, a staff that after a while really uh, saw the opportunity to grow individually and collectively and take on these big challenges and, and to the point now where I'm no longer really pushing the innovation. I'm actually pushing back on it to make sure that we, we don't overheat the engine, so to speak, because we've got so many good ideas and so many things to do. Um, but, but Holy Cross and I got to know each other. They were a candidate industry partner at NREL. Um, and in fact, we still continue to work with my old team and my old lab on a number of really innovative things, uh, even today. Um, but in, in kind of getting to know them and trying to court them to bring their entire distribution system to our laboratory at NREL to model and simulate and work with, um, along the way, they had a leadership transition. And I was contacted to see if I was interested. And I thought, man, this never happens. They never take somebody out of the lab and put them in the C-suite. I better check this out and see if this is for real or not. And uh, I'm glad I did because um, translating the research into operations is a whole nother discipline whatsoever. The technology is actually the easy part. The harder part is getting your organizational culture wired for innovation. Um, It's about getting your communities behind you and supporting you. Um, while still having them hold you to account to keep the lights on, to keep the rates low, to do the work safely, um, adding sustainability into the mix is a challenge. It's it's and it's got it's got to be done in a way where we're not sacrificing the eighty hundred year more compact between a, an electric utility and their communities to you know do all the things that I mentioned earlier.
0: Yeah, the safe the safe reliable power while you're while you're moving this ship in a completely new direction and I wanted to talk a little bit about the goals at Holy Cross which I understand have ramped up from being 70% renewable by 2030 to now 100% renewable by 2030 and concurrently you've had cost savings in your power supply costs. I don't know if that's recently or whether that's a couple years old but you've been able to maintain at at least you said this last year the lowest residential electric rates of all 22 Colorado's electric cooperatives while being very aggressively on this path, I would say.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right, Ted. We've saved close to $15 million in our power supply costs over the last three years as a result of a shift away from more conventional sources of energy to these renewable resources, which frankly are beating the existing resources on price in many parts of the West. Whether it's new wind, whether it's new solar, um, you know, when you also start to factor in battery storage and the ability for those to be paired with wind and solar resources uh, to provide not only energy but capacity, uh, you can really start to make some um, some advances in keeping your power supply costs low and and maybe even reducing them. That has the side benefit of allowing us the extra resources to invest in cybersecurity, in grid modernization, in wildfire risk mitigation, and all the things that we're facing out here, and to be able to do so in a way that doesn't require us to go to our board or to our community and say, we need a higher rate, we need more money from you to do this stuff. Um, It actually allows us to provide a higher level of service quality, even as we're transitioning to these renewable energy resources now it takes a lot of innovation it takes a deep rethink of who you are and what you do and and you know you're you're moving from a utility that's focusing on taking commodity kilowatt hours generated by a fuel with a cost moving it one way over a a relatively rigid distribution system to a, a passive customer that just pays the bill and and thanks you for the lights being on um, it is a much more of a contact sport in the sense that our consumers are now asking more of us. Um, we are delivering new and innovative services to them. We're having to be much more active in balancing our system and coordinating our resources and operating a little bit like a distribution grid operator would, uh, where we're trying to be the orchestra conductor for all of the different you know, drums and cymbals and whatnot, uh, some of which are owned by the consumer and not by us or owned by and operated by someone we have on contract, and it's not a utility-owned resource. So it's a much more complex landscape that we operate in, and everything from how we train our workforce to how we operate our system to um, what we prioritize for investment has been um, radically revitalized in the last few years, and I'm proud we're able to do it while still remaining one of the lowest-cost suppliers of electricity in the state.
0: Very, very impressive. You know, I I don't know if I told you this. I started my career at the New York Power Authority. I could I could count the power plants on one, uh, the big power plants on one hand. Of course, we had all the generation yeah. in Niagara Falls. That was really our biggie. But you know, utilities now like yours will have thousands of uh, interconnections. Like you said, much more complicated, much more inherently, I think, more resilient if we wire it properly. I wanted to, uh, I wanted to jump into the storage program that I, I have a house in Old Snowmass, as you know, I've signed up for your Power Plus program that Chris is running for you. And uh, I'm really excited about it. And, and it, as I understand it, I'm going to be a host for one or two Tesla power Powerwalls. Uh, you're going to be flexing them for the utility grid as you need to during the course of the year. Uh, if you're anticipating an outage, you'll top them off. I'll have all the resiliency in the power walls for for a grid outage, and I get a little bit of I get a little cash, a couple hundred bucks a year for for that. Is that is that right? That that's pretty close to being
1: right, Ted. First, thank you for being a Holy Cross member. We appreciate that. As a, a member owner, uh, you have a say in the the, the direction of your cooperative and. Um, We've had a chance to chat with you about that and appreciate the advice and the the guidance. Um, You know, as a member owner, there's no reason why you can't invest in the utility system that you own. uh, This distribution cooperative of yours called Holy Cross in a way that provides benefits both to you and to the cooperative as a whole. And our power plus program is a perfect example of that. Um, We are basically providing uh, 0% down 0% finance lease to own program where you can host a Tesla power wall at your home or at your workplace. Um, it comes out to about 30 to $40 a month, depending on the install costs. And we include those in there as well, uh, for each of those power wall units. and, and for hosting that and allowing us, uh, access to those batteries on your, on your grounds, Um, To be able to manage those as a grid resource uh, a finite number of times per year, we actually pay you a, a bill credit for the privilege of doing so. We're effectively buying some capacity from you to help us manage our peak load or alternatively, and I think this is more likely going forward, to top you off when we got more than enough sun in the midday or more than enough wind in the overnight that we would otherwise have to curtail and pay a penalty for. So that battery is a resource that can be bundled together with other batteries and other grid resources to help us operate in a more flexible way that is absolutely vital as we get to 80, 90, 95 percent renewables and clean energy, much of which is highly variable. We need to flex our demand as well as flexing our supply. And you, as an owner of the cooperative, get to do that with a battery that also provides you that extra level of energy resilience that you seek. So I think it's a fantastic deal on both sides of the ledger.
0: I, I do too. It's truly, it's truly a win-win, and it gets to this notion of that we, you, and I talked about value stacks, which is in the New York regulatory proceedings. It's all about value stacks, and it's, it's just uh, to, to simplify the concept. It's just to realize that there's different values to different parties, and if we can find yep. value to the utility, at the same time that there's value to me as a consumer. Uh, then we've obviously been able to take the cost uh, of an infrastructure like a battery backpack and, and basically distribute those, those benefits uh, to, to different parties. So that, that seems yeah. to be a big part of what you're doing now. Is, is a, now how, how big of a storage installation would you accept on a, on a property? Well, we,
1: we size our storage installations
0: to the, the load that that customer
1: provides or on the other hand, to the to the generation that that customer provides, we're we're really excited about pairing these batteries with rooftop solar systems, and maybe looking at loosening up some of the limitations that traditionally you've had in place around the size of PV systems and the net export. You know, if the export can occur at a time where we would otherwise be uh, lighting up a gas turbine or going to a power going to a to the power market for excess supply, um, that's a benefit for the consumer as well as a benefit for the environment. Uh, and in many ways, consumers that have solar on their roof and batteries in their garage or aside their house um, can participate in a distribution level power market the same way that any PPA solar project in the community can do. Um, and from a cooperative perspective, honestly, I'd rather create and exchange value with our member owners than with those who are not. Um, and so it, it's really a great way to be engaged with who we are and what we're doing. And to your point about value stacking, Ted, it's really hard to do that uh, in, a, in a regulatory environment where you're looking at it through only one lens or the other. In our case, um, we can monetize the values that we see on the utility side by giving you this bill credit against your lease payment on the battery that is giving you the values that you see on your side. So we can we can stack all of those things in one program. And I think that makes it really easy for the consumer to conceptualize and participate in, and it removes some of the barriers to DER adoption that we're seeing out there. And frankly, I should also mention, we're doing the same thing with electric vehicle charging, and we're helping people finance the installation costs of those EV chargers. We're giving away the EV charger, the level two charger, uh, for free with a full 100% rebate. Uh, We want to make charging available in our communities, and we're supporting our communities in doing that. So that folks can drive electric and feel comfortable moving around in Holy Cross territory, that they're never far away from getting that, that, that recharge that they
0: need to keep going. I mean, I'm impressed by, by the vehicle program. You're giving a consumer two free chargers and then yep. the consumer has to pay for the installation of the chargers, two or three thousand dollars, but you're going to finance that for them and let them pay that over two or three years. So you've taken all the yep. pain away in the process. I, I salute you for, for doing that. Um, you've really figured, I, I think, figured out uh, that as long as customers don't have a big upfront cost, uh, they're they're pretty happy to participate. Just going back to the whole Power Plus program, i I guess, it's obvious, but uh, you know, I'm a consultant for big corporate users here in school districts, and we're installing batteries, and we're using them for peak clipping benefits for the consumer. We're using them for energy arbitrage for the consumer: buy low, discharge at high, at high rates. And you're just doing the exact same thing on a utility scale, aren't you? Uh, we are. And,
1: uh, you know, first we can do it through the accumulated fleet of individual Tesla power walls that are out there. We can call what's called a peak time rebate event. And we can uh, instruct those batteries to get ready to discharge between the hours of four and seven because we think we're going to hit our coincident or our system peak for the day. And we want to modulate that somewhat. Um, We can also look at the possibility that we will install uh, commercial size batteries, you know, a containerized one megawatt unit at the bottom of a ski lift or adjacent to a hotel or next to a large manufacturing facility or in a a town center that's got some critical government infrastructure functions that uh, we want to make sure at a school where we've got kiddos that, you know, if there is a power outage for whatever reason, we want them to be safe and comfortable and to be able to continue to learn until their parents can come and pick them up. Um, so, so when you overlay the, the energy resilience concepts on top of this, it's another value uh, for the, the the justification of energy storage, um, not just at a home or a business, but in society writ large. And I think that, that allows us to both have the storage flexibility to absorb these variable renewable resources, but then when the grid is not available to us, the regional power system is not available to us, if we have enough locally connected generation resources and battery storage, we can still keep the lights on, even if it's just locally or on a feeder or on a you know substation loop. Uh, we can still keep people empowered, and that's you know you're a utility. You got one job that's to keep the lights on, right? And I think we need to think about how do we have a plan A and a B and a C and a D, right? Because as we're seeing. The world is experiencing more extreme weather events. We've got cyber threats that are growing. We've got aging infrastructure that's failing. we got the squirrels, you know, bane of my existence. Um, They're all out there. And everything's conspiring against us to take the power out. And it's our job to keep it up. And we need to come up with multiple avenues to do that for our members.
0: Your peak time payback program, as I understand it, anybody can provide energy to the grid during your peak times and get paid for it. Uh, they don't get penalized if they if they aren't able to deliver it. Uh, it's just a, contra- it's a contribution. Somehow you, you've you got a, a call that goes out there. That's pretty impressive to me, uh, just a straight payment. What percentage of your retail rate is that payment?
1: So it's it's actually multiples of it. Um, when we call a, a, a peak time uh, payback event, Uh, Depending on the, you know, the the strength of which we want that demand response, we're compensating either at 50 cents or a dollar per kilowatt hour saved during that two or three hour window on that particular day. Um, We try to predict what we think the peak will be for that day. And if we realize that, hey, maybe it's in our interest to uh, pay that 50 cents or a dollar because the opportunity cost of serving that load is more like 10 or 12 or 16 dollars to us then we save, the consumer saves a little bit, and the system isn't strained. And on days like you know, hot summer days or winter afternoon peaks, during the ski season here in, in Vail or Aspen, um, that can translate to a lot of reduced power supply costs, not just for the, the storage owner or, and, and I should point out, this is all demand response. So if somebody wants to set their programmable thermostat, somebody wants to set their EV charger to stay out of that window, They can participate in this peak time rewards program, totally voluntary. We felt that the carrot was going to work a whole lot better than the stick here. And by the way, we're introducing this year a pilot program that does the same thing, but in reverse, we actually pay people to consume more electricity during certain times of the day. As I mentioned earlier, when we got too much solar on the peak in the midday or too much wind in the overnight hours. Um, we don't want to curtail that. That, that frankly makes me cry because that's a wasteful use of a resource. So, can we top up the battery? Can we charge the vehicle? Can we pre-cool or preheat the structure? Um, these are the things that I think will give us the flexibility that we need on our journey to 100.
0: So, you have a lower price during those periods, right? That's how you're. Yeah, well, before that it's, it's,
1: basically, it's basically a bill credit. So if, if we uh, compare your, your baseline usage and you use five kilowatt hours less during this three, two or three hour window, then you get five times whatever the price was as a bill credit coming back to you in that monthly bill.
0: What percentage are distributed energy resources of your, say, your annual power mix now? Is it, are we, are we at 10, 10, 5%, 10%? I mean, I know this is going to grow rapidly in the coming years, but yeah. What do you think?
1: Um, so we have a mix of distributed rooftop solar, but also some small hydro um, as well. And I think when you add those up, it's about 5% of our annual production by nameplate capacity. It's actually closer to in, you know, 20, 25 megawatt nameplate, but the production obviously is, is you know, less than that. Um, that's a pretty significant portion of our system. But we're trying to throw a lead pass and anticipate that, you know, the interest in DERs is only going to grow. Um, We also have some locational value. We occupy a couple of mountain valleys for which our transmission system is one way in, one way out. And as we learned um, in 2018 with something called the Lake Christine Fire that took place in the hills above Basalt, Colorado, we were one burning pole away from losing service to about a third of our service territory, on the biggest economic day of the year, July 4th. And uh, if it were not for the quick thinking and actions of an XL energy lineman, not even one of our own, um, we would have had a whole bunch of people unhappy and in the dark. And that was a real wake up call to think about how do we build a more resilient energy system? And like you said, Ted, the, the localized resources, the closer the generation is to the load, the more resilient it is. And, and that's been a design principle that we've stuck with ever since.
0: A big part of my business is now building microgrids for municipal facilities here in California, and and we're designing them and for school districts we're designing them with lots of solar and lots of storage, and we're basically getting to a point where these microgrids could operate indefinitely in a carbon free mode, in an islanded carbon free mode. And so, as a, as a preamble to my que- my last question to you, I think is just what are the, what do you think the utility of the future is going to be like? we were used to a utility being a big centralized entity with large centralized systems and billing procedures. Everything is big. And, but as we go forward, what do you, what do you think the role of the utility will be? How will it change?
1: You know, uh, Ted, I think that, uh, you know, the phrase networked microgrids comes to mind in the sense that uh, communities and campuses and units of, of government city and county homeowners associations, um, they're going to, they're to the extent that it's economically profitable for them to do so, they're going to invest in localized energy resources that they can call upon at times when the grid's not available. And, and the, the, the power grid becomes more of the, um, the interstate highway equivalent. You know, we move goods and services over the road, but those goods and services couldn't move if the road wasn't there. Um, there's a lot that's been made about the notion of transactive energy of neighbors trading with neighbors, but it, it's the grid that actually makes that possible. And so it's hard for me to imagine unless people invest in really long extension cords across their their, their fences, um, how that power trading is going to occur without a utility involved in the mix. Um, are we going to be a commodity supplier of kilowatt hours? Probably not. There will be a transition to a, uh, a purveyor of energy services. Maybe we'll help be the ones that finance and operate the microgrids. Maybe those will be done by third parties and we'll provide the connective tissue. Maybe we'll create the opportunity for those market transactions. Maybe we'll be the provider of last resort that has some resources on standby to, to catch you when you fall. Um, I think that future business model is still yet to be written. And there's a lot of innovation that's out there to be done. I know it's something that we're spending a lot of time thinking about here at Holy Cross, given the needs of our communities. And um, oh, we're going to awesome. be investing in innovation and research and development to try to explore all of the possible futures that are out there, knowing that where we want those futures to be is safe, affordable, reliable and increasingly clean.
0: And Brian, how, how are you keeping balance in your life? I, I think it's by taking care of those kids and being on the soccer field as much as possible.
1: Yeah, I've got, I've got two daughters, 15 and 12. So you can imagine that they, uh, they have a lot going on in their lives too. The 12-year-old is a, a really accomplished uh, dancer. The 15-year-old is, is playing soccer and now she's got her first job, uh, starting to learn how to drive. Um, mom is a, a consultant and executive coach and working on growing her business. And um, I'm just trying to have a lot of fun and stay happy and, and be a happy warrior because uh, I love what I do. And, and I think it's got um, a lot of opportunity for, for, you know, making change in a good way that hopefully uh, we'll all be proud of. And, and frankly, to, to set a direction that others can follow in their own way with their own details on it, what we're doing at Holy Cross, we're 1% the size of the largest utilities in the country, but if we can decarbonize and we can get sustainable and we can do all of this without, sacrificing the service to our members, then it stands the reason that I think other utilities could do the same thing in their own way with their own resource mix and their own culture. And, and I hope that our example and the example of others that are leading uh, can inspire us all to act because this is a really important challenge that we're facing this climate change thing.
0: Thank you very much. You are setting the example, you're proving the model. Take your vitamins. Thanks so much for your time. I'll look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you, Ted. Appreciate it. That's it. Thanks for tuning in to this edition of The Net Positive. We'll see you next time.